Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. John Moronchek was born to Ukrainian parents in Adelaide in the early 1960s and has gone on to become one of the most travelled and successful winemaking consultants in the world. Listen to his chat about what he really thought of English wines when he first arrived here in 1988. His views of how the industry has developed, the invention of his Gin King brand, and how personally he feels the current war in the land of his parents. Hi, John. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Tim. Tell me what you're up to. I mean, uh, I think you're in the middle of harvest, aren't you? We are. Um, we're about 200 tonnes through, uh, expecting probably some of thousands. And next week's when it really starts cranking up. But uh, just a few things to check today and they're crushing a few grapes. So. And you're at Denby's in Surrey, aren't you? I am. It's actually 38 minutes away from your house. <laughs> That's always good to know, in case I want to go there. Listen, we've got lots of stuff to talk about, but I want to, as I often do with people, take you back to your childhood, because your background's super interesting. You were born to Ukrainian parents in Adelaide in the early 60s, same year as I was. Um, I just tell it, you know, how did they get there? Was English your first language going up as a kid? What, they, what were these Ukrainians doing there? No, I um, actually, uh, they were refugees, and so they came out with the shirts on their backs and, and made a life uh, in Australia, running away from the Russians. I mean, I... I was taught pretty much that the only good Russians are dead Russian, and I never really understood that. Mm. I never understood Dad's sort of visceral hatred of Russians. I, I, I kind of get it now um, through the events of the last few weeks and months. But, um, yeah, so I was a little Australian boy. Uh, I remember singing God Save the Queen in my shorts in the sunshine, not really understanding the language because Ukrainian was my first language. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's a bit weird. It's pretty uh, a good place to be born as a mm. tall, blonde, blue-eyed boy. Not so good, I guess, if you were brown. I didn't know at the time that there was a Indigenous tribe not six miles away that were being relocated at the time I was singing God Save the Queen. So mm. probably not so great for them. But no, exactly. Good for me. I mean, any, and any links with wine back in Ukraine? I mean, you, were your parents wine drinkers? I mean, they weren't, they weren't involved with wine, were they, in any way? No, not in any way at all. I mean, but, uh, Dad was, Mum abstained pretty much. Dad was uh, vodka and, and spirit drinker mm. when his mates came around, but he was very, very careful to avoid uh, drinking most nights. But when his mates came around, a few bottles of vodka would go. And uh, at one stage, my Petaluma collection of fine red wines, he drank when I was at college with Coke. So <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't, he wasn't a, Connoisseur by any stretch of the imagination. Cheers, 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 Dad. I mean, so you had this, you know, pretty nice upbringing, you know, surfing, being close to the beach and stuff. And yeah. then you decided to study geology, didn't the University of Adelaide nearby? Were you going to go into mining or something like that? I mean, what was the idea? No, really, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, and at, in those days, I mean, anything to do with arts was considered, you know, for, for stupid people, which is so obviously not the case. But uh, so I just went into science. I was good at science, but. Um, I went to um, university. I had just turned 17. I got accepted into Adelaide University had to do a science degree, and I was majoring in geology um, pretty much because the rest of my family had gone through science. My sister was a 
a geology uh, masters and um, I didn't really know what to do. So I was, I was doing that um, and got a summer job at uh, Petaluma. And so that was the move into wine, really, was it? Absolutely. Petaluma was about, I don't know, seven or eight miles away from where I lived. Uh, I had a, a motorbike, a Suzuki 185TS. So I used to go driving through the hills, uh, very nice winding roads in the Adelaide Hills, as you know, and uh, uh, got to Petaluma and uh, started doing vintages. I think it was, I believe, the very first vintage that um, Petaluma had done in Piccadilly. I think the previous wines were made um, on campus in uh, Wagga. So you were right at the start of Petaluma, really? Yeah, it was, it was being built around me when, when, when I was an you know, assistant shit kicker. Yeah. I mean, what was the Aussie wine industry like at the end of the 70s, early 80s? Was that moving out of fortifieds into table wines? Yeah, it was um, really very exciting times. I mean, uh, I think uh, Petaluma was at the forefront of it. Uh, Crozier and Jordan were, you know, they were intelligent, science-based uh, guys that really revolutionised the industry um, this is Brian Crozer and Tony Jordan, yeah. Brian and Crozer and Dr. Tony Jordan, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And they were um, you know, instrumental in, 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 in rejuvenating an industry which was based on you know, old families, sort of mm. not even 20th century techniques, sort of 19th mm. century techniques. And uh, they, they sort of broke apart the chemistry and biochemistry of wine and, and, and made certain axioms of winemaking which uh, permeated through the, the whole industry at the time. I mean, the things that you learned from them, those two guys, giants, really, in their way, Tony Jordan, Brian Crozer, stood you in good stead throughout your career, or have you kind of moved on from that? Definitely. I think the stuff that I learned from them, I've had to unlearn. Um, but those, they were older guys, um, actually not that much older now, but they seemed a lot older in those days. Uh, I was 18 when I started working there, and... Um, you know, Tony took me aside and we talked about politics. He was very Labour, mm. um, you know, and it was the first time I guess I was really treated like an adult. And um, and then, you know, I learned so much from them in terms of they set up companies like Innerfield and Innertep. Innerfield was a bottling, a portable bottling line company. I worked there for 15-hour days, you know, getting one cent per bottle. But you could do 17,000 bottles in a day, which was $170 in those days. It's a lot of money for a day's work. Mm. Um, and I, I sort of learned the, you know, sort of that you didn't really need to go and work for a company. You could make a company and and, mm. and, and do things yourself, which mm. to me looked very attractive. Yeah, because you've all, we'll talk about that later. You've always been very entrepreneurial. I'm always amazed at the amount of things you kind of set up, and we'll hear about that later. But and you went to to Charles Sturt University, uh, Wagga Wagga, as it's known. I always think it sounds a bit like a kind of Monty Python wine, don't you? But yeah, anyway, and, and then you started to travel, didn't you? 85, you did a vintage at Claude Bois in California, and you've been traveling pretty much ever since. I mean, what were your kind of formative experiences overseas in those first six years when you were starting to travel outside Australia? Well, um, <clears throat> I, I spent traveling like most people do after university from Australia, and I, I got a vintage at Claude Bois, as you said. Um, which wasn't awfully different from the Australian wine industry that I was used to, because I think I think actually Crozer you know, bought a lot of his ideas from his early days in California, um, and it was fun. Uh, I remember being really really tired after vintage and noticing everyone was just buzzing and wide awake. I didn't realise there's a lot of coke going around at the time. <laughs> <laughs> no one offered me any. 
Um, but I, you know, it was it was good. And then I, you know, I went first time I went to a, a, a non-first world country. I went and travelled in Mexico with a, a a guy I met there called Hugo Campbell, who um, became very important in my life. We're good friends. I ended up being his uh, best man at his wedding. He's a he works for Ermans. Uh, we worked together for years after, after that. So I met him there, and then um, yeah, then went on my travels to the UK. Mm. Where, uh, I met Ruth, uh, who you've met. Uh, Your wife? Now. Um, and, yeah, from then, things progressed. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking, could you have achieved what you've achieved if you'd stayed there? Do you think, I mean, you stayed in Australia, not Mexico, or, you know, you have made a life in England. Um, you can't really have a parallel universe, I guess. I, I, financially, I don't know. Um, but in terms of uh, life, you know, I'm... I, I live in London. I live in West London, which is fantastic. Um, I've travelled all around the world and seen different cultures and different wine styles and, you know, um, you know so many things that um, I couldn't imagine spending the last 40 years in Tunawara or, you know, <laughs> Clare Valley or something like that. No. I, I enjoy my anonymity. Yeah, yeah. And, and what, what made you move to England in the first place? Was it? I think it was just to do a vintage, wasn't it? Yeah, well, um, after... After meeting Ruth, we travelled for the next six years. Um, I, I did vintages all around the place, um, after California, in, in France, in, in Burgundy, in Alsace. And then I did three years of stints as vintage winemaker at Penfolds, firstly in uh, Yende, then uh, Loxton, then New Ripa. Um, And it was just travelling because we, on the way back, we always stopped somewhere like you know, China or India or Indonesia or Eastern Europe or something and, and, and did travel. So we did six years of that, uh, which which was fun, you know, young and, and uh, you know, no, no real responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And you made your first wine in England in what, 88, didn't you? 88, yeah. I was working, um, I was doing telesales in Regent Street and uh, I uh, heard of this chap called John Layton who had done a viticulture course by correspondence in Wagga Wagga. And so I gave him a call and offered, you know, to help help out during that harvest in '88. Um, and he said, "Sure." And I, I went up there, and it was, it was a very small winery, much smaller than I was used to. Um, and you know, green great. '88 was a terrible, terrible year, even in those days. And mm. you know, so the grapes were sort of little hard pellets, and we tried to make something out of them. Uh, and he let me have reign of the winemaking, which mm. I wasn't expecting. Mm. Um, and you know. I did the vintage there, and then went and went back to Australia and did another vintage. And then, um, and what sort of shape was the English wine industry in then? I mean, just beginning, really. Was it? I mean, it begun. You know, obviously, yeah. it's got antecedents, but seventy six was the kind of the start of the modern wine industry. But what was it like by the time you got there in eighty eight? Well, I, I bought a whole bunch of wines to taste to see what was going on, and they were seriously disgusting. They were all labelled like Liebfrau Milch, but much worse than Liebfrau Milch. You know, ten times the price. Oh, Three times the price, and um, I couldn't really find any anything to go on, uh, any handle to grab hold of, because they were just really, really poor wines, really mm. bad wine making, pretty much universally. So I went to um, New York State and had a look, met Dr. Frank, went to Dr. Franks, and a few places in in, um, uh, in the Finger Lakes to see what cool climate, really cool climate was all about, and mm. then came back here and did a vintage in '89 at Thames Valley, sort of with a bit of knowledge from 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 new york state yeah 
And were you aware of being part of a movement or were you just kind of doing your own thing? I mean, were you talking to other winemakers? There really weren't any in the UK, uh, to, to be honest. I mean, I, I don't mean to be rude about the pioneers and all that, because, um, you know, but there wasn't any anybody really to, to talk to. And I, I wasn't doing anything particularly spectacular. I, I was just using basic, uh, basic winemaking, you know, keeping the pressings separate and um you know cool cool fermentations and and, and and strict monitoring of everything and just doing basic you know basic things keeping things clean and then you know labeling them in sort of non-germanic ways and mm. and and then you know getting some malolactics through and things that people weren't doing really mm. and um that was uh the beginning of um sort of my sort of wine making here and it was mm. it was written about by you guys a lot as the sort of the, the, the the new age of English wines and, yeah. uh, you know, uh, got a lot of press um, at the time. And the wines were, were okay, but they weren't particularly complex. But you did a lot of things first, didn't you? You know, I mean, you, you were the first person to make a botrytis wine. I think, were you the first Pinot? I mean, certainly the first Pinot that was drinkable that I had. I mean. yeah, yeah, I think so, with proper oak and all that. Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing that I feel... I tried, and I think I'm pretty sure it was before anyone else was making sparkling wine from Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Munia, putting mm. it through malolactic. Mm. I knew it was really good at the mm. time, but I don't think there was the the scale um, to sort of be be recognised until mm. much later that England was a good place for sparkling wine. Mm. I mean, I'm just looking back. Are you surprised by how successful the industry has been? Looking back at '88 and where we are now in you know 2022, and People talking about English sparkling wines as being world class and you know as good as champagne, whatever that means. Uh, yeah. Is that still a bit surprising to you? Um, yes, it is because uh, I, I didn't expect global warming to be so quick. I mean, yeah. I we all knew about it, but it, it really has changed. I mean, mm. we never used to start picking until this week, um, the first week of October, of the very early grape varieties, and now that's two or three weeks earlier. Mm. Um, you know, I remember picking Chardonnay sort of towards the end of November mm. and uh, still unripe. Uh, mm. These days, I mean, we've got Chardonnay coming in now, which is which is perfect for sparkling wine. Mm. Uh, this year is really interesting, actually, because with a really hot summer, the amount of acid levels are really low. I mean, they're two or three grams, whereas normally we get five or six grams. So, mm. um, you know, seasons have just, have just changed all around the world, actually, but particularly in England for the better. Yeah, I mean, did you see the focus on sparkling wines coming? Did you think that would always be the strongest suit? I did. Um, I, I thought that you know, that was definitely a huge potential just because of the natural acidities um, and also the soil. I mean, I didn't know in those days the diversity of the kinds of soils um, that there are around the UK mm. and how interesting the different regions were going to turn out. Mm. And I'm enjoying learning more about that now. Um, but yeah, I always thought sparkling wine would have a have a big thing. Although it's it's interesting in the market these days. I think you know we're seventy percent sparkling and thirty percent still, whereas sales are pretty much the other way around. So oh, um, yeah, uh, so it is interesting um, what the future holds. I don't know if we can keep the prices up to where they are. Um, you know, I think there's a there's a huge uh, potential to to grow much yeah. further. Because you then started consulting to other people, didn't you? You set up the Harvest Wine Group. And how many people were on your books, as it were, back then? I mean, you know, you got a bit of a name and you were outspoken and this sort of slightly brash Aussie kind of telling them what to do. I never was. But anyway, people wrote that. I, well, I don't think I was. Probably anyway. me. No, you're yeah. not that bright. You're lovely, really. 
best downhill snow skier in Saudi Arabia, I think was the uh, was the quote at the time. But um, no, I think I I said, to, uh, "Are you the best winemaker in Australia?" And you said, "Yeah, but it's a bit yeah. like being the downhill skiing champion of Saudi Arabia." That yeah. went down well. Yeah, no, it didn't. But uh, yeah, I thought that at the time. But I, I, the Harvest Wine Group came about because I um, I was doing contract wine. I set up a contract winemaking business at Thames Valley Vineyards. Uh, and yeah, that was a, a few clients. And I, I was consulting to a few wineries um, around the UK. Um, and I noticed no one was actually selling their wine. That, that company was called Harvest Wine Consultancy. So mm. I thought, well, they're not selling their wine. So let's make a cooperative sales venture called Harvest Wine Group. Mm. And so there was 13 different vineyards and wineries. Mm. Uh, and we, so we made a company with 13 directors, employed a salesman, and went out to try to sell English wines, which we did very successfully. I mean, we got in threshers at the time, you know, all sorts, but the, the problem was the on-sale, people weren't taking it off the shelf, and so just collected dust on the shelf until they mm. uh, they reduced their prices because, mm. well, I mean, it's an old adage, and I'm sure you remember it from the time, about how many bottles, how many people it takes to drink a bottle of English wine. You know no. that one? No, what was that? Five. You know, three to hold him down and one to pour it down his throat. Was the... <laughs> well, and the, and the fifth person is the person drinking it, or yeah, not? Exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, if it's mentioned to anybody English wine, they would just turn. They would in those days they would have just turned up their nose immediately. Whereas yeah. nowadays, you mention English wine, and um, people are yeah interested. You know, and yeah. and they know they've heard of Chapel Down, they've heard of Denby's, you know, yeah. and um, you know they're interested in tasting it and trying it. Yeah. I mean, then another bit of your career opened up and you'd obviously been traveling a lot before that. But in 93, you went as a so-called flying winemaker sent by Tesco, I think, to the to the Czech Republic, didn't you? And for eight years, you you were a flying winemaker as well as all the other stuff you were doing. You ended up employing, what, nine other people all over the world. Well, why were flying winemakers so successful at that point? Do you think? Was it just a moment in time when they were useful? I think so. I mean... Actually, the first Tesco's own label I did was something called Southern Counties from from Thames Valley Vineyards, and then from that followed on the uh, the gig at Valtice in the Czech Republic, and um, it was quite a funny story actually. I uh, I remember having this argument because they could kind of understand my Ukrainian. It's it's a quite a similar language, and so I spent two hours arguing with this guy about adding oak chips to the Chardonnay, and he just said, "No, it's not possible. We can't do it. We can't do it. It's not possible. It won't fit in the tank. It won't fit in the tank." And he was thinking that we need to put a wine barrel inside the tank. Mm. And um, yeah, it was a two-hour sort of conversation. That, no, and then finally I realised, no, no, it's like chips of oak, not the, not the actual barrel. But flying winemakers in general, I think, um, it, it was a period of its time. It was quite mad. I mean, you know, it was – you could put up projects. Uh, I was working with Ermans. They were the distributor. And they could just make up a – you know, how about – Peru. Oh yeah, okay. Or uh, a classic one was uh, was Uruguay. Um, you know, Uruguay is one of the flattest wine making yeah. countries. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's on the Atlantic. Yeah, yeah. And so we, we made a Uruguayan wine called Pacific Peak. <laughs> there isn't one. <laughs> There's no peaks, and it's not. I'm not even on the air. Uh, so um, you know, that was one. And then, then yeah. how about we go and make some wine in Peru? And and in those days, it was. Yeah, we'll take 20,000 cases of that, 20,000 nine-litre cases of that. And it was a done deal, prices. Yeah, yeah. And, and they would take it all and there'd be no questions yeah. asked. I mean, at one stage, I was doing 60,000 cases from Brazil. Wow. You know, that was before South America. And that was you know, yeah. during the World Cup 
um, back in 84, was it, or something like that? 94, rather. 94, um, yeah. And so it was quite mad. They were, they were Hamacon days, really. Yeah. Um, and, and basically what it was, flying winemakers were, were Southern Hemisphere winemakers, mostly Aussies, right? Mostly, who, yeah. who Who came and were often sent to these out-of-the-way places, but also to, to traditional winemaking countries in Europe, you know, like France mm. and, and Spain and Italy, to really clean up the act a bit? Would, you, would that be a way of describing it? Yeah. I mean, I always found it more difficult in Europe um, uh, to get to get things changed mm. than, than in, than in uh, faraway places. Mm. Um, and it's interesting, if you know, to, to be successful... You really need to have the the owner or the boss or the managing director fully on board, mm. um, and and to say you know to the winemakers and that you must do this or else you know all hell will break loose. Yeah, and then it becomes a bit easier, and then then it's a matter of get, gaining the trust of the uh, uh, the winemaker and mm. and the staff there to you know show them that you actually do know something about something and you're not yeah. just there. For fun. And then of course you know, in those days in the flying winemakers days there was also the marketing aspect of it which which was a bit misguided in a way because i'm sure you might go into it but the four corners consultancy which mm. I, I i set up i mean the, the biggest problem with that is people actually want provenance and they don't want you know uh, johnny aussie going to mm. tell uh to pierre in bordeaux how to make his wine you know, yeah so. yeah i mean you've worked in loads of places you've mentioned some of them already i mean i've lost count how many places you've worked in do you know how many no. countries? No, uh, no I've had that, but most. Not Thailand, <laughs> um, not New Zealand, funnily enough, but yeah. pretty much everywhere else, I think. Um, you know, and some unusual places, you know, as you've mentioned Brazil, but also you still work in Israel, you've worked in Mexico, again, you mentioned mm. that, Moldova, Turkey, Russia. Um, just Is there any one of them that's given you lots of pleasure, particularly in those out-of-the-way places where you've been a bit of a pioneer? Yeah, I mean, I think England, uh, the places which were really, really crap. Uh, you know, like the whole industry was, you know, was terrible, like in England um, and like in Russia, uh, two examples. To, to a lesser extent, South Africa post-apartheid in 95, they really, they really didn't know what they were doing because of their isolation. I mean, mm. I think they've learned one or two things since then. But, um, but in those countries where you can go in and make a huge difference immediately uh, Thinking of an example for, for Russia, for instance, I mean, they had when I uh, got there, um, the tanks so they never measured dissolved oxygen, and it was like eight milligrams per liter, which I never realized, but that's saturation, so you literally cannot get any more oxygen into it. So the wines were knackered after three weeks, you know, two or three weeks after bottling. Mm. So I just got them to buy these massive nitrogen generators and bubble nitrogen into the crap for a day before they bottled it, and all of a sudden the wines held. You know, from that, you can start building a relationship because you've made such a huge change. Then you can start building a relationship. And that winery in Russia, uh, Fanagoria, where I was working up until Mad Vlad decided he wanted to call Ukraine home. Um, uh, you know, when I left there, we were making wines which are just stonking. I mean, really, really high quality wines. Um, so to go from a point where they were really undrinkable to a point, it took 16 years, mind you, but um, you know, to a point where you know, you've really got the vineyard and everything you know, singing. Hmm. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's a great thing. It, it's less fun in a way to go to places which are 
which are already very good and tinkering yeah. around the edges to try to make them better because that's slightly more subjective. And that's also incremental, isn't it? You're just making a tiny change. Whereas, as you said, you know, you can go into somewhere like Russia and and completely transform a winery. You know, I'm not saying in a few weeks, but and it does take years, but you can transform their mentality very quickly, right? Not just the winery, the industry. Yeah, yeah, which is great. Yeah, yeah. Just tell us, you mentioned Four Corners. Where does Four Corners fit into the story? And was it then followed by Litmus Wines? Uh Yes, it was followed by Litmus Wines. It, it, Four Corners I started in 2000 because the flying winemaking thing was um, was dying down a bit. And so, um, and I was doing a lot more uh, consultancy, like wine business consultancy opposed to mm. flying winemaking around the world. So I thought I'd call it Four Corners. Mm. Um, and, you know, for the next eight years, I was consulting all around the world, doing much, much less in the UK, um, uh, flying everywhere, uh, consulting, um, making wines, and then, um, which was very good because at the time my kids were growing up and I could manage to organize my life to have you know, 11 weeks holiday a year yeah. whilst they were on school holidays. So yeah. um, the two things that I needed to do, because you know, not, not coming from money, was to make enough money for the house and the school and everything uh, and, to, and to be with them, which, which Four Corners allowed me to do. And when did you start Litmus Wines? Um, that began in 2007, and that was uh, a joint venture between me and Sam Harrop because we both had wine consultancies, and uh, we joined them together uh, with the aim of helping them to market and sell their wines as well as helping them in production. Mm. And so we got an office in King's Cross. Uh, we employed Mike Florence from um, – he was running the IWC at the, IWC at the time, so we headhunted him because he's a – because he's very good as general manager. Uh, then we set up in 2007, 2008 um, in the office in King's Cross uh, working until which time Sam left to go back to New Zealand in 2011. I bought him out and then Mike and I uh, came up to Denby's and based ourselves here. And you make, what, four different wines? I mean, they, you know, they're kind of an attempt to, I don't know, push the boundaries a bit of the English wine industry. Would that be a fair description? Yeah, the first litmus wine... To put it in perspective, the Litmus Wines wines and a very small part of um, of what we do. Um, it's the fun part. Um, and the first one was in 2010, uh, and it was a Chardonnay and Bacchus blend. Uh, and the idea at the time was to make it sort of like, yeah, the cloudy bay of England. So when someone thinks of an English white still wine, they think of Element 20. Uh, it hasn't worked out that way, but... Um, it's called Element 20 because it's grown on chalk and calcium is the 20th element um, uh, of the periodic table. Um, and, the, and the little uh, motif on the front is a coccolith under a microscope or a representation of one another, um, which is where the calcium came from in the first place. So that was the first one. And then in 2011, I thought, again, a bit like I thought, house prices in London were going to go down in 2003 when I waited two years to buy. Mm. I thought there'd be a, 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 a gut of, um, a glut rather, of uh, Pinot Noir because mm. everyone was planting. Um, so I thought, well, I tried this white Pinot from Trentino and really loved it. And so I thought, well, I'll just make white Pinot Noir because there's going to be plenty of Pinot Noir grapes on the market. Mm. But yeah, it's ended up decent Pinot Noir from the Crouch Valley or something. It's a bit like rocking horse shit, you know, you yeah. can't. Yeah, it's it's expensive and um, mm. and difficult to find. Yeah, so. 
I want to talk to you a bit more about climate change. You mentioned it in terms of the, the picking dates this year. I mean, lots of people in England say, hey, it's great. You know, isn't it wonderful that we're, we're, we're picking earlier and we've got riper grapes? Is it, broadly speaking, a positive thing? Do you see any downsides to climate change? I mean, I mean, in England, I'm talking about the wine industry. I mean, I mean, well, I know, that, I mean obviously, in the greater world, I mean, in wine terms. It, in wine terms, there's absolutely yeah. no doubt that it's, it's a blessing. I mean, it's, it's been really good this year. For instance, it's, it's been fantastic for us. We haven't suffered too much from any sort of um, uh, water deficiencies. Um, but as you say, in, 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 in overall terms, and we're all going to burn to death, it's not great. No, no. It's, it's, <laughs> and wine is a comparatively unimportant thing in that context. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I wonder how it's affecting places like Australia. Do you still talk to mates back in, in, in Oz? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this year wasn't too bad, but the... Um, I, there are regions in Australia which, well, you know, have a lot more than me with all your contacts. But mm. yeah, there are regions which, you know, they doubt whether they'll be viable in five or ten years' time. Mm. You know, uh, regardless of how much water you put on, because you know, vines close down after a certain mm. temperature. So, mm. I just wonder how you think the English wine industry will develop over the next twenty years. I mean, can it can can it sustain its current rate of expansion? Will people keep planting? Uh, look, it's perspective. You know, we, we mentioned this winery in Russia, Fanagoria. And, you know, Russia's not really a known winemaking country, and Fanagoria is not the biggest winery in Russia, mm. and it crushes more grapes than England. Mm. So, you know, if you put it in perspective, it's still quite, it's still very tiny. Uh, mm. um, uh, and so I see absolutely no reason that it can't keep on expanding, apart from, you know, southern England's a car park, apart from mm. that. Mm. Um, uh, there's, there's absolutely no reason. We've just got to manage it well, keep up the quality, keep up the prices, um, and I, I see a bright future. Why not? And especially since the, you know, you know, the pound is worth about as much as the Zimbabwean dollar, um, it's going to become relatively cheaper to anything we try to import. <laughs> so the prices might start to look more affordable, right? Because we're going to be bringing exactly. in stuff from overseas, exactly. especially if we're paying in dollars, right, or euros. Yeah, exactly. And import, I mean, this whole don't get me started on Brexit, but the whole mm. thing is uh, everything is more expensive. You know, mm. this, this, this customs duties on importing stuff that you don't even understand, you know, mm. they, they just, they just charge whatever they want. So it's mm. a, you know, everything's going to go up in pricing. Um, and, you know, that'll be a, a, a slight uh, advantage, but you don't need that many people to drink, you know, the few million bottles of wine that we make. Um, so it should be okay. And do you see us making more still wines, particularly what we've mentioned about climate change? That's happening, yeah. definitely. Um, and we're also uh, getting to know the regions better. I mean, I've always thought Essex was the best place in, in the country to grow grapes. I used to make wine for a, a guy called Thornton Holmes III, who was a proctologist uh, in Mersey Island. And his grapes always came in first. They're always really good quality, you know, um, back in the 90s even. So... I had that feeling, and now we deal with um, a lot of litmus wines. Actually, are made from grapes grown um, in Crouch Valley, um, and mm. you know, okay, the soil's clay, mm. but um, you know, you get the drainage, you get a slope, and it's just got the best potential in the country. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you get thirteen percent natural mm. alcohol regularly, even in bad years. And it's uh, also drier. Is it drier than Cornwall? Is that right? I, mean, I don't know if I read that somewhere correctly. But... Uh, I don't know if it's drier than Cornwall, but it is quite dry. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, 
Tell us a little bit briefly about Jinking, which is um, another thing you've done. I've mentioned your love of innovation, and this is something I think Ruth came up with, didn't she? Where she just said, I fancy a fancy an aperitif or something before dinner, and you invented it, right? Yeah, well, she came home from work. I came home from work, and she uh, was sitting in the garden on a lovely summer day, I think in 2015, and uh, she said she didn't know whether she felt like a glass of English sparkling wine or a, or a gin and tonic, and... Uh, posed the question, I wonder what it would be like if you blended the two. So I ran off to the local loffy and got a little bottle of gin and put it in some sparkling and it tastes like shit. So it's it's not good. Um, so I spent the next year sort of trialing blends and trying to work out how to actually get it. I wanted it to be natural. So all the all the uh, the um, components, you know, be it rose petals or angostura bark or whatever, are all natural. There's no sort of additives. Um, so we come up with a jinking and it did very well. I mean, it was in Morrison's and Tesco's and Marks and Spencer's and we exported to the United States and, and uh, Netherlands and Singapore. Um, and it was at a time when, you know, sparkling wine was on the increase. Uh, all the, all the gins were coming through. So yeah, it was all good. And um, I tried to sort of grow, grow the brands and with the, with a hope that someone would one day come across and would, Mr. Warren, we want to buy your company, but uh, it hasn't worked out that way so much. <laughs> it will, it will. No, it's hard to it's hard to play with the big boys. I mean, when you're against, I mean, you know, Treasury made something called Gin Fizz in a similar shaped bottle, half the price. Yeah. You know, uh, so it, it's difficult to um, to fight those guys. So it, mm. we're actually contracting it back down to English wine because mm. we made a Spanish version, an Italian version, mm. um, and now we're just concentrating on on smaller volumes of the English stuff. Mm. And just tell us, I mean, post pandemic, we hope. Um, which overseas projects you're focused on now? Where are you still working overseas? Because you're pretty much England-based now, aren't you? Yeah, well, England is, you know, I, I turned, as you did, last mm. year or this year, 60. And um, uh, and uh, travelling has lost its allure. I mean, travelling itself, I mean, it, there were so many, there's so many uh, barriers to travelling and they seem to have money. There was a few nice things about traveling which they've managed to suck out of the system um so i'm not really looking forward to traveling so i'm only going to work in places that are really of interest i mean i've just turned out a gig from argentina i'm currently working only in mexico and israel um the long-term projects i've been working with them for both of them for over 20 years um not really striving to look for overseas work anymore unless it has something that really interests me and yeah. it's not unlike my earlier days when i had yeah, sort of a lot of, lot of commitments. Mm. It's not no more. It doesn't need to be financially driven. Mm. You know, I don't. I don't need to go and and, and do those things I don't want to do anymore for the earn cash. You know, yeah, I'm much more interested in what's going on. But there's so many interesting things going on in the UK now and here at yeah. Denby's. Yeah. Um, you know, so you know, life in wine is is pretty interesting in the UK at the moment. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned your Ukrainian heritage at the beginning, and you know, there was an auction which we were all both involved with earlier this year. Mm to raise money for, for humanitarian aid. I mean, do you still have family there, I wonder? And does a part of you still feel very Ukrainian and therefore, you know, deeply affected by what's going on? I, I feel more Ukrainian now than ever. And my, my ability, I mean, almost, my ability to speak the language has improved um, out, of, out of sight. Um, mm. I went, my dad's side from Western Ukraine, all the older men have got work in Poland, so they're mm. safe. They'll go back and fight if they have to, but if they go back, they can't leave again. So they're okay. I actually went to that part of Ukraine in 2018, mm. which would have been my dad's 100th birthday, and met them all in this this village, which is 
beyond. I mean, it's incredible, really. I mean, they, you know, a few a few pigs and a cow and you know some chickens and <laughs> very nice people. Um, so I, I'm in touch with that side, and also uh, introduced my boys to them, which was nice to give them some heritage. Mm. My mum's side is in Vosnesank, from Vosnesansk. I don't know them that well, um, or at all really. But um, that's in a war zone now. Um, mm. It's on the front line, pretty much. I think so. Um, yeah, not that great. And have you made wine there in Ukraine in the past? Yeah, yeah. I um, I worked. I did some work for the European Bank of Reconstruction and Development, mm. uh, doing feasibility study in in Crimea, mm. um, which is Ukraine. Uh, but I haven't been to mainland Ukraine uh, in Odessa, mm. which is pretty close to where Mum's from. Mm. Um, uh, but so uh, yeah, Crimea and 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 um, Moldova, which is not that far away as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you've, you've got this very busy life, obviously wine focused, but you've got an amazing family. I just wonder how you get away from wine. I mean, I know you play the guitar a bit. Um, yeah. And, and what about time for other things? I mean, cooking's a big thing for you, isn't it? Yeah, because actually I've got a, a very nice, my first ever steel string guitar for my 60th from Ruth, <clears throat> which I don't play as much as I should, but I notice my, my, my fingers are no longer behaving as they did when they were younger. Mm. Uh, but I strum along to various chords that I pick up off the internet, and that's quite fun. I, I, I enjoy cooking very much, um, mm. and so that, that that's a big thing. I play golf, um, you know, go skiing. That's, that's about it, really. Um, you know, meet up with friends and have a drink. And is wine still as much fun to you as it was, you know, when you started out all those years ago at Petaluma? It's got more complicated, and I realise how, you know, when, when I first left Australia, I, you know, I, the, old, the old story, you think you know everything, and it's amazing how much you've forgotten. I mean, it gets more and more uh, complicated, and uh, I, I feel having come from the arrogance of Australian winemakers in the 80s or 90s. I kind of, I'm very wary of people that have ideologies Mm. which are very firm Mm. because it's such a complex matrix of what's going on. Mm. Um, Anyone that says this is the way like we used to um, Mm. isn't right. There's many ways. And sometimes you have no idea why it's worked out so well and you shouldn't pretend that you do. Yeah, I suppose it's it's called growing up in a way, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> we all have to do that sometime. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, John, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I mean, I love what you're doing all over the world. Good luck with Jinking um, and, seeing, and, and seeing off the competition from the big boys. Hope you have a great harvest this year in England. Fingers crossed that it's going to be as good as everybody says. And see you very soon. I think we owe you dinner, so it's time for you to come around to us. With pleasure. See you, my friend. See ya. Great guy, John, and I love that line about being the downhill skiing champion of Saudi Arabia. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is author and presenter Karen McNeil, author of the best-selling book called The Wine Bible. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at TimAtkinMW. See you next week.